0: then the king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. Well the other says, Not so, your son is dead, and my son is the living one. So the king said, Bring me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king. The king said, Divide the living boy in two, then give half to the one and half to the other. But the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because compassion for her son burned within her. Please, my lord, give her the living boy. Certainly do not kill him. The other said, It shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide it. The story of the time when King Solomon solved a case by threatening to cut a baby in half is quite famous. It was told, it was included in the first book of Kings to demonstrate how amazingly wise the king was, and it seems to have worked. But the story for me raises more questions than anything else. I get that the king acted as a kind of supreme court in ancient Israel, and so that he would have judged cases. But how would two lowly sex workers gain access to such a court? And if they did, why would they bring what is basically a domestic dispute before it? And then, of course, there is the really big question. What kind of king attempts to cut a newborn baby in half? And don't tell me that he was only bluffing. The story requires that everyone present believed that he was really going to do it. Even more shocking, what kind of woman willingly agrees to the slaughter of a child, even if it is not her own, in order to win an argument? It is possible that this story was created, perhaps even centuries later, as propaganda for the House of David. But what if there were real events behind this story? How might some of the characters involved, the women in particular, have seen it all from a somewhat different angle? This is Retelling the Bible. Episode four point thirteen Magnificent Monarch Mansplains Motherhood Sex work was not what Natanya had imagined for her life. Few women did. She had imagined herself married and raising a family as part of a large extended family that would give her the support that she needed. She had even been engaged once to a good man, a kind man, a man who had loved her with tenderness and care. But he had been pressed into service to fight in one of David's endless wars. He had never returned. A woman in her position didn't have a lot of options. The best option, of course, was for her family to find her a new husband, but Natanya fell into a kind of a gray zone. She was neither a widow nor a virgin, and so prospective husbands and their families didn't want to take a chance on her. Her family decided that they could not keep her, and women were not allowed to own property or earn a living, well, except in one particular way. And so she had fallen into sex work, because there were no other options. She, like most of her sisters in the trade, followed the military camps. Business was always good with these men who were forced to be away from their families for long periods of time. It was while she traveled around with the army that she met Raushana. Raushana's story was a little bit different from Netanya's. She had actually been married to a cruel man, a man who mistreated her. But then he had lost interest in her and decided to divorce her and seek marriage with a woman who had a bigger dowry. As a rejected and divorced woman, Raushana had even fewer options than Natanya. Also, frankly, the time she had spent being abused by her husband created deep emotional wounds in her, Wounds that were poorly healed and that were often ripped open in the course of the work that she had to do. Raushana found in Netanya someone who understood her and could give her some comfort. The two became close friends and they would often share a tent together on the rare nights when they didn't have any customers. A time of civil unrest finally came to a close when the new king, David's son Solomon, won the battle for succession. He brutally suppressed and murdered his enemies, and the nation entered into a time of peace. Solomon did not become entangled in very many foreign wars, preferring to take a more diplomatic approach to international relations but this did not mean that he did not need an army. Solomon forced many of the people into service on his building and trade projects. As a result, there seemed to be an almost constant unrest simmering just below the surface of the nation. The military became necessary to maintain the peace, and so Solomon continued to press men into military service. He kept the large contingent close to him as he rapidly built up his capital of Jerusalem. And so it was that Natania and Roshana were able to settle down in Jerusalem for a while. They took rooms together and continued to ply their trade among the constantly changing regiments that were putting in their terms of service in the growing city business was good, and most of the men, many of whom were simply trying to deal with their loneliness at being away from home for the first time, made fairly good customers. Pregnancy had always been one of the risks that came with such work. The sex workers had traditions that had been passed down through the centuries that helped to mitigate that risk. Honey and acacia leaves could be very effective, and in extreme situations, the expensive silphium resin from Egypt could be used. But nothing worked perfectly. I suppose it was inevitable that sooner or later, Netanya or Raushana would come to expect a child. When it befell both of them at once, however, they were surprised. Perhaps this was a blessing from Yahweh for them. If a sex worker had a child, a boy, it had to be a boy, of course, This was one of the few developments that could bring her new opportunities. Her son would not be able to inherit property, of course, for who would he inherit it from? But there were still many more work opportunities available to him than his mother could ever have. Maybe, should he survive and live long enough, maybe his mother could know some stability and order, for her life. Maybe. So, both women decided to take the risk and carry their children. Raushana felt hope for the first time in a long time when, with Natanya only to help her, she finally brought a son into the world. And then, only three days later, Natanya also took to the birthing stool and brought a child into the world. She, too, had had a son, and the two women rejoiced together that Yahweh had seen fit to send such a blessing into their poor, miserable lives. They rejoiced, but still they knew that their task of raising these boys would be anything but easy. Israelite men had a particular horror of women who had recently given birth. They did not understand the power that women had to bring forth life, and so they shunned them. No Israelite male would lie with a woman who had not resumed her normal cycles, and it would be some time before these two women would be able to work again. Yes, it seemed that over the next while, both women would not only be dealing with postpartum and nursing but also with extreme poverty. Poverty and malnourishment can play horrible havoc upon nursing mothers after a few weeks, Natanya found that she was simply not producing enough milk to keep her son alive. And so it was that Raushana began to nurse for both of them. But she was not eating much better, and it was a struggle to keep both children going. She did what she could, and who could blame her if she favored her own son a little bit more? Natanya grieved so much in those days. What kind of mother was she if she could not produce enough milk for her own child? She would still go to bed at night with him clasped to her breasts, and he tried, oh, how he tried, to take nourishment from his mother. But day after day he grew weaker and weaker, and night after night, she cried herself to sleep. One morning, Raushana found them in their bed, clutching at each other. Looking at the boy, she felt certain that he would soon be breathing his last. She tenderly took him from his mother's arms. To try and feed him one last time her own child was fussing after his own inadequate meal and so she lay him down in Netanya's arm there he finally settled down and fell fast asleep she took the other boy and tried to give him what little milk she had left but he was too weak to even suckle properly. He was gone before Natania awoke. I hesitate to even attempt to describe the scene in the house that morning. Natanya's initial hope upon finding a child who was alive and strong at her breast was soon dashed as she realized that it was not her child. When she discovered the death of her own child, her grief overwhelmed her, and she did react in ways that she regretted afterwards. She lashed out at Roshana, accused her of theft and worse, even struck her across the face. But Raushana understood only too well what her friend was feeling, for she too lived in fear of it. And she took the abuse with patience and waited for the emotions to cool. Before long, they were both weeping together and renewing their bonds of sisterhood. few days later, the young king was in the city, staying in his father's house, for his own new magnificent palace was still under construction, and it was known that he would be sitting in the court that day to hear petitions from the people. Raushana had a thought.
1: Netanya. I think that we should go and speak to the king. He needs to hear our story. Think of it, we provide a vital service for the king and the nation. We make the long periods when the king's soldiers are away from their families bearable for them. We keep the troops happy and that benefits Solomon more than anybody. And yet, here we are living in such poverty that we cannot even manage to nurse our own children. If something doesn't change, My own son will face the same fate as your child before he is grown. The king is the servant of Yahweh. If he only knew, surely he would do something.
0: And so, with great courage and resolve, the two women went up to speak to the king. When they were first shown into the audience chamber, it took their breath away. The ceiling was made of massive cedar beams, and they could not understand why it didn't fall on their heads. The king wore gorgeous robes that shimmered when he moved. If they had not seen a few familiar faces among the assembled courtiers, for courtiers have needs as much as anybody, they would have been completely out of their depth. But still... When they were finally called forward and bade to speak they almost completely forgot what they had planned to say. And so they just began to tell their story. The story of the birth of their two sons and the hope that they represented. And Netanya began to speak in intimate detail of that terrible morning and how she woke to discover that the child in her arms was not her son, and of her friend telling her that her son was dead. Many in the court listened with compassion, and there were more than a few tears on the cheeks of the assembled company. But Solomon did not weep. In fact, he only seemed to be half-listening and was much more concerned as he looked around with the elder statesmen in the room, the people who had served his father, and what they might be thinking of him. He was looking for a way to impress them. Finally, seeming rather bored with the women's tale, the king interrupted them. Yes, yes, I understand, he said with irritation. This one says that the child is hers, and that one says that he is hers, and you've come to me to sort it all out. Roshanna was about to speak up and tell the king that, no, he wasn't listening, and he didn't understand what the problem was, and that they had come looking for help with something a bit different from that. But then she saw the look on the face of the counselor who stood by him. With merely a glance, he made her realize that no one dared to tell the king that he didn't understand something when he sat in the court. And so she remained silent. Suddenly, the king seemed to decide something. Bring me a sword, he cried. Everyone seemed rather puzzled by this request. Solomon, unlike his father, was not particularly known for his abilities as a warrior. He generally preferred to use other tools to win his battles than swords. But there were, of course, many swords extremely handy. Within moments a fine sword, with a jewel embedded in its handle, had been placed in the king's hand. He looked at it a moment, almost as if he wasn't sure which end was which, and then absently handed it to his closest bodyguard. Here, he said, take this little boy and slice him in half. That way they can both share him. A great cry went up from the whole court when they heard this. The people were all horrified at the very thought. But Solomon just smiled at them all smugly and waved towards the women, indicating that everyone should attend to what they said. Netanya, well, you can just imagine what she was feeling she was already living through the nightmare of losing her own child call it postpartum depression or post-traumatic stress or perhaps both together she was a mess in that moment all that she knew was that she could not stand to even consider the possibility that she might watch another child die she cried out to the king.
1: You can't, my lord, you can't. Tell the man to put down the sword. Give the child to Raushana, and we will withdraw our request. We'll leave you alone.
0: But Raushana she reacted differently. She felt a calm settle over her. She knew that she had something to say. Something that needed to be said. Perhaps... It was a message from Yahweh. Whatever it was, she was not going to draw back from speaking.
1: Go ahead, my lord. You might as well cut my son in two. You need to understand that if you are not going to listen to what it really was we came here to say, if you are not going to address the underlying problems that brought us here today, then it doesn't matter whether it happens now or in a few weeks. Neither of us will have a child.
0: And there? Right there? Solomon had his sound bite. Aha! he cried triumphantly. You all heard it. This one cares nothing for the life of the child, so give him to the other one. She can only be his true mother. And that was it. The two women and the boy were quickly ushered out of the king's presence. And their protestations were completely drowned out by the applause and adulation that was piled onto the king by a room full of people who understood only too well that others were watching how they reacted. It is often said that history is written by the victors. That is true enough. But in the absence of an actual war, it is more fundamentally true that history is written by the powerful. They are the ones who are given the privilege of putting their spin or their interpretation on events that have occurred. And they do so for their own reasons. Did Solomon understand that there was more at stake in his encounter with these two women than the question of which one of them was the mother of the boy? I suspect that he probably did. Whatever else he was, Solomon was no fool. But to acknowledge the deeper issues that their situation raised would have meant tackling some of the systemic problems and inequities that existed in his kingdom. That would have cost him, in terms of his political capital. If, on the other hand, they were merely there to present a dilemma that he could solve with a bit of cleverness, well, that was a win for him. What would you have done? And so an official account of what had happened that day was composed and spread among the populace. The wisdom of Solomon grew and spread far and wide. And as for Netanya and Raushana, and Raushana's boy, worry not for them. They were used to men treating them as if their concerns didn't matter. They would find their way, as they had always done before. The story of Solomon and the two women and the baby has always been Solomon's story. It has always been about his wisdom, his cleverness, but never about the women, nor even about the child. It is fairly obvious that the story only exists as a way to praise and exalt the king, a perfect example of ancient propaganda. And, like all propaganda, it doesn't matter whether the story actually happened. What matters is, is that people believe it. But I couldn't help but wonder if it really did happen about the other people in the story and how they would have seen it and what their perspective might have been. I couldn't help but wonder what if the two women didn't really go to the king in order to sort out which one of them was actually the mother, but because they were actually looking for some help with some of the deeper systemic issues that they were dealing with. All of a sudden, it seemed to me that Solomon, like any leader, even in modern times, might well have all kinds of reasons for not wanting to deal with the deeper systemic issues. So why not turn the confrontation with the women into a simple logic problem that he could easily solve? The best part, of course, is that when you control the official court record, the problem that you get to solve is whatever you want to say that it was. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next one. It will be out in a couple of weeks. A five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or some other podcasting platform is a great way to help other people find this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ada, that is by Kevin McLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at Incompetech.com. The mood music for this episode is Star Traders Hollow, a new composition by Gabrielle McCandless, who also played the role of Raushana in this episode. Thank you to Gabrielle and her sister Zoe, who played the voice of Netanya, for sharing their acting talents. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page, Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode, have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.